This is Chapter 143 of the WCBS Author Talks Podcast. Follow us on Twitter and Instagram at WCBS880Books. I'm Lisa Chernkovich. This week, we chat with best-selling thriller writers Kathy Reichs and James Rollins about their new books. Plus, we ask them if they've ever imagined a scenario like the world is living through right now. We keep hearing about the scams and wrong information swirling around the coronavirus outbreak. Whether it be fake test kits, rumors of a complete lockdown in New York City, or even bogus cures. Disinformation and the people who spread it are one of the main themes in A Conspiracy of Bones, the brand new installment in the series of books featuring forensic anthropologist Temperance Brennan. Fans of the long-running TV series Bones will recognize that name. Author Kathy Reichs teases the book for us. I read recently that one ought to be able to describe one's book in five bullet points. So I thought about that, and my five bullet points for this book would be a brain lesion, a faceless corpse, exile, a conspiracy theorist, and exploitation of the vulnerable. Tempe has a lot going on in this book. If that doesn't draw readers in, I I think you've already lost them. (laughs) (laughs) It's ironic that we're talking about this book, which is filled with modern day conspiracy theories during a pandemic that itself has generated its own hefty dose of theories. That is correct. And um, that is one of the main themes of the book, both on a personal level for Tempe and on a broader level for society. We as listeners and readers are constantly inundated today by misinformation and disinformation. Anybody can get on the internet or put out a blog and say anything they want. And it's not just crackpot conspiracy theorists. It's also people in authority. So how does the average listener or reader sort through all of that and know what is real and what is fake? What's fake news? What's alternative facts? So that's one of the themes of this book. And on Tempe's level, she has a medical condition now that for the first time in her life, she's having to question her own perceptions on her own personal level. What is real and what is what is not? How can I rely on? Because at one point she gets robbed of all of her physical evidence, which is her stock and trade. And she has to rely just on what's in her head. And she's asking herself, can I do that? Can I trust my own perception? And what Tempe is going through is actually very personal for you because you wove your own diagnosis into her character, right? I did. I, uh, not long ago, was diagnosed with a cerebral aneurysm, unerupted, fortunately. So I had surgery to just block it off. So I'm fine. Um, but I figured if I have to have, as I said at the postscript of the book, if I have a brain oddity, Tempe's going to have a brain oddity. So she has this same situation. But for her, she's suffering from migraines and she has to take medication. So she's not sure sometimes what's real and what maybe she's imagining. Was it strange for you to put that much of yourself on the page? It's very new for me because um, while I draw on my work, on my cases, to put ideas into stories. I don't draw on my personal life. So this is the first time that I have put myself out there, so to speak. So you've described yourself as a zombie ant. You have to tell us what that's all about. 
Oh, a zombie ant. There's a, a colleague talks to Tempe in the book about zombie ants that are taken over by these um, viruses who implant themselves in the ant. And then, and this is true. And then they're able to drive the ant's um, behavior. So I'm kind of like that. Um, I describe myself as an ant more than a zombie ant because my feelers are always out looking for new ideas and sniffing the air for what's going to be an issue um, of public interest down the road. And that's how I came up with this idea of using fake news and these conspiracy theorists and um, all of that that's out on the airways these days. And there's a, a, a cold case, too, that kind of found its way as inspiration into your story, right? Yeah, I worked on, the story opens with the discovery of this faceless corpse, uh, a body that has no hands, no face. So you can't use fingerprints, you can't use dental records, you can't visually identify this victim um, because it's been scavenged by feral hogs, which we have here in North Carolina. I've never seen one, fortunately, but they're out there. I had a case years ago of a woman who was murdered and her body was left out in a heavily wooded area and she was scavenged by bears. So I took the idea of a body that can't be identified because of damage due to scavenging animals. And I, I, I did what I always do. I asked myself, okay, what if this happened and what if that happened? And then I spin it off into, into fiction. You have a, a unique perspective for our, for our listeners in dealing with the current situation everyone is experiencing with this coronavirus pandemic. You've dealt with death on a daily basis. It's part of your job. How did you deal with that? Did you compartmentalize it? Did you find a way to take a break from it every day, step away from it in order to keep yourself sane and to keep yourself going? Well, I think you have to have a personality that allows you to do with that. As, as you say, I deal with not just death, but violent death. Um, at the forensic labs where I work, it's, it's murder, suicide, accidental. We don't do any, um, any hospital-type deaths, uh, medical deaths. So you have to have the ability to, to deal with that on a day-to-day -day basis. And you also have to, I find in my case, you have to develop the ability to leave it behind at the lab and at the end of the day and not take it home with you. Because if, if you can't, if you can't distance psychologically, um, you're, you're going to burn out. You're not going to be able to do the job. So I think it does take that certain personality to be able to, uh, to go into my line of work. You have so many fans out there who have grown to love Tempe through your books, through the TV show and Inspired. Did you ever think when you wrote that first book that you would still be writing about her and her cases all these years later? <laughs> 19 books down the line and 24 episodes of, of the TV show. No. Um, back then, I just, uh, I had never written fiction. I made full professor at the university, so I was free to do something new and different. I thought writing fiction might bring my, my science to a broader audience. I had just worked on a serial murder case. So all of that came together. Um, I decided I would write the book. Um, my only hope was that I could do a good enough job. Someone might want to publish it. And then people might buy it and actually read it and like it. That was as far as I was looking at that point. Will you keep writing these books? 
I will. I'm under contract for um, at least 20. I'm working right now on the next book. It doesn't have a title yet. There seems to be a demand for Temperance Brennan. Um, This character has kind of a global appeal. Um, Our TV show was on, I think it was 100 foreign territories, and the books have translated into, I think it's 36 languages. So people do seem to um, like this character, and I like this character. So yeah, I'm going to keep writing about her. So you're going to keep busy during the lockdown creating the next story that will keep us glued to our seats and our eyes on the page. (laughs) Yeah, I mean, I... My current reading is a National Science uh, Academy report on genome editing. So that may give you some sense of what the next book will be about. Oh, I love a good tease. <laughs> <laughs> exactly. Always looking for what's going to be in, you know, in the public interest, in the public mind somewhere down, down the line. You thriller writers end up being fortune tellers to me sometimes. It's amazing to me how you're able to put your finger on the pulse of what's the next thing to come. Well, I hope so. And each of the books, hopefully as a theme, um, I've looked at human trafficking. I've looked at trafficking in endangered species. I've looked at political issues. The grave secrets had to do with exhuming mass graves in Guatemala. I've looked at, you know, outlaw biker gangs in the, you know, so I'm always looking for something that's that's out there and hopefully bringing in a, a, a broader theme that that has impact on society. Well, I think fans of your writing, fans of Temperance Brenner are really going to enjoy A Conspiracy of Bones. Kathy Reichs, thank you for spending some time with us and talking to us about it today. With the coronavirus pandemic sweeping across the globe, there are a lot of people who think the end of the world could be upon us. You know, that part about plague mentioned in Revelations? Others, like American poet Robert Frost once wrote, Some say the world will end in fire, some say in ice. There's a little bit of both of that in The Last Odyssey, which focuses on a zealous doomsday cult trying to bring about the end of days with a little help from ancient history. I spoke with author James Rollins about his inspiration and why thriller writers always seem to be ahead of the game when it comes to global threats. It's going to be very hard to talk about your book without giving anything away, but how are you teasing it for readers? Well, the story starts when a group of researchers, they stumble upon a shocking find. It's a centuries-old medieval ship that's found buried in Greenland under about a half a mile of melting ice. And the ship holds a collection uh, that's both you know, wondrous and horrific that date back to the Bronze Age. And it includes this clockwork gold map that's crafted by a group of Muslim inventors, uh, inventors that are considered to be the Leonardo da Vinci's of their time. It's a map that's rumored to lead to Tartarus, the Greek version of hell that's featured in Homer's Iliad and the Odyssey. In order to stop these zealots from breaking those gates open and unleashing an apocalypse, Sigma Force has to go where humans fear to tread to cross through the very gates of hell to save the world. How exactly did Homer's writings, the Iliad and the Odyssey, inspire this book? Well, you know, I've always loved reading uh, those old adventures, and, and a lot of my books cover the topic of, you know, that separation between myth and history. You know, for the longest period of time, Troy was considered to be a mythic place. You know, it appeared in Homer's Iliad and the Odyssey. Everybody thought it was a, Homer was just making the city up, uh, that this war never really happened. 
until there was an amateur archaeologist named Heinrich Schliemann. He was uh, went out to Turkey. He was uh, followed some clues in Homer's Iliad and Odyssey to try to figure out where Troy might be. He identified a hill and along the coast of Turkey. Start digging, started digging into that hill, and he discovered a set of ruins. And it took about a decade later, but then it was confirmed that those ruins actually were Troy. So within just a moment, you know, history, I mean, myth became history. And so it got me wondering as a fiction writer, you know, if the, if Troy was real, you know, how much of this other stories of found in the Odyssey, the story of gods and monsters, curses and miracles could also be true. And so that began my exploration to, to build a story around that. And the story crosses from one end of the Mediterranean to the other, basically revealing how much history and mythology blend to reveal the, the truths that are hitting in the hidden past. It's funny. I didn't think about it until this very minute, but... What Homer did blending history and fiction is what you're doing. You're following in his footsteps. Well, yeah, it's something I love to explore. You know, throwing with that our, ourselves today, in fact, and that everybody's you know talk about fake news is myth. You know, you know, fake news is you know is, is it what's real and what's true. And, you know, we're all entrenched in our own little camps along the spectrum between truth and mythology, between science and religion, between right and left, between fact and propaganda, between, you know, your ideology and mine. And it's within those boundaries where, you know, truth and, and fiction, truth and myth mix that, uh, uh, you know, is where great stories can be found. I think one of the, the truths that you write about that totally shocked me and I for sure would have thought you were making it up is just how advanced the technology was in a few of these ancient societies. When I started doing this, again, I don't travel that much for research. I generally travel just for the fun of it, and then I'll discover interesting things. And so I had been to uh, the National Archaeological Museum in Athens back a few years ago, and I saw this Greek device called the Antikythera Mechanism. Uh, It's basically uh, what's considered to be today by most archaeologists to be the first analog computer. Um, and when I started delving deeper into like, how advanced were these people, uh, and I, I talked to historians and archaeologists and found out that there's a whole slew of these sort of self-operating machines, these cunning automatons, these ingenious mechanical devices that the, the Greeks and Romans had developed over the years that most people aren't even aware of how advanced these were. And so uh, part of The Last Odyssey uh, is to give readers a better look at that astounding you know, extent and breadth of their inventions. Uh, and, what you'll find in this book is actually pretty shocking, but also true. There's also a, a doomsday angle to this book as well. And I think that's something people might say we're living through right now with this coronavirus outbreak. <laughs> it's true. You know, again, being a fiction writer, I'm always looking for those end of the world scenario. And hopefully that's not something we're living in now. Uh, but I, I came sort of fascinated with the way various cultures view the end of the world, especially in regards to uh, the visions that seem to be common amongst different peoples. Yeah, but what's growing worrisome for me is this sort of zealous view that seems to be arising about the end times. Uh, uh, there's, you know, this whole movement politically and militarily about uh, maybe even advancing, trying to push towards this this biblical end time. And that trend is growing in support both here in Western nations, but also in the Islamic world. Uh, the current uh, supreme leader of Iran, the president of Iran, is a believer that the end times are upon us. And so, you know, why these apocalyptic cults that are featured in my novel are fiction, uh, you know, the existential threat of, of these types of groups are real. And and the idea that the, the earth and that the, the current society will be kind of uh, knocked out with fire, that's, that's like a prevailing theme among all of them, right? 
Exactly. I mean, there's you know the old Robert Frost line. You know, well, how's the world going to end? It will end in ice or it will end in fire. And uh, you know, at this point, there what's concerning me is the fact that there seems to be a movement, a trend, both in, in the political sphere and the military sphere towards you know trying to make the visions that appear in revelations and the in, in different books of the bibles and apocryphal texts and, and jewish texts to make that come make that come true by force of hand which is which is scary you know people that actually try to end the world believing that so they're serving biblical prophecy did that line from robert frost inspire the places where the book takes place because you do have fire and you've got some ice <laughs> as well that is true. Uh, you know, we start out in, in Iceland and Greenland, and then we move sort of a big Mediterranean adventure. You know, I consider my book to be sort of escapist fiction. Uh, that's uh, I got a starred review and published weekly describing it as such as being a brilliant piece of escapist fiction. And I think at this point in time, I think we can all use a little bit of escapist fiction. And the story is sort of a, uh, a big Mediterranean adventure. We cross from one side of the Mediterranean to the other. So for those that can't travel to Europe anymore, if you want a little European <laughs> adventure, this is a great little way of getting a, a little armchair version of that. So you mentioned you don't travel for research. How do you get the details of these places just right? Or are they based on places you've already visited? A little bit of both. I mean, uh, some places I know I'm going to have to actively research for a novel. In this case, you know, I, I traveled to Iceland and I, I saw some of the level of melting glaciers in Iceland. So that got me thinking, you know, what might be buried under there. Uh, back a couple of years ago, I, being sort of an armchair archaeologist myself, I think, you know, even though my my professional career as a writer and before that was veterinarian, but listed in my job uh, wishes was to be an archaeologist. And so I went and visited Sardinia, where they have a bunch of Neolithic ruins that become part of the story. I went to Athens and Olympia and Rome. And I, I pester historians and archaeologists. I always describe myself as a bit of a lazy writer, a lazy researcher, rather, and that I prefer somebody to, to call somebody up and have them tell me things rather than me to look them up. But, you know, when I went across the Mediterranean, I started artifacts and, and writings, you know, dating back to a mysterious era known as the Greek Dark Ages. That's the age that uh, Homer, Homer was writing about in the Iliad and the Odyssey. It's a shadowy time in the Bronze Age when three civilizations uh, that were flourishing were suddenly laid low during a massive war, a war that some historians dubbed World War Zero. Um, and one of the only accounts of this war-torn time comes from Homer's epics. And The Last Odyssey is my attempt to, for my research, is to shine a, a greater light into that, that mysterious dark time and what it means for us today. And I'd be remiss if I didn't mention that fans of Sigma Force who've been following all their adventures in your books will not be disappointed because you do, in fact, blow up yet another World Heritage <laughs> site. Exactly. I am notorious for, uh, you know, finding beautiful historic sites around the world and then destroying them. I don't think they'll be disappointed with this one either. I was actually a little shocked. I was like, oh, my God, he went there. Well, I mean, it, it, that's you know one of the beauties of, of being a writer is just sort of walking around and touring, looking at, you know, I, I did a, uh, uh, I was invited my, by my Italian publisher to speak in Rome and attend a, a little writing uh, convention in Velitri, a little small town north of Rome. And uh, I got a chance to visit uh, Castel Gandolfo, which is the Pope's summer palace. And I, I, at that time, I didn't think anybody could visit it, but apparently the new Pope uh, opened up Castel Gandolfo for the first time for tours. And I was able to get a tour of, of, uh, of the Pope's summer palace. And there's some, uh, some intriguing things I learned on that tour that are also in, you know, folded into the story. And, of course, I won't tell you what happens to kind of you know, Castel Gandolfo, but if you are an avid reader of mine, you might guess. <laughs> so, James, what are you working on next? Uh, I have an anthology coming out, actually, in September. Uh, it, it, it has a 
accumulation of all my short stories that have spread across the different media over the years. But I'm also including, I just didn't want to sell you, it's old stuff. It includes a, a brand new 100-page novella featuring a pair of characters that I spun off from Sigma. Uh, it's Captain uh, Tucker Wayne and his, his military war dog Kane. Uh, so it's sort of a dynamic duo that was inspired from a USO trip to Iraq that I took back uh, in the winter of 2010. Uh, where I saw these men and women working with their dogs in the field, and I love trying to capture that unique bond. And so uh, there's a new story featuring that pair of characters in uh, the anthology. And right now I'm working on my uh, next Sigma novel, uh, tentatively titled The Savage Zone. Uh, and oddly enough, uh, it deals with viruses. So, I was going to ask you know, if if anything that was going on now was influencing what you were writing, but you yeah, you had the I, idea I, beforehand, or I did, did it? I did. My, my editor sent me a little note. said, Jim, are you making this happen. (laughs) (laughs) I said it to another writer I spoke to this morning that I really think you thriller writers have some sort of crystal ball or a sixth sense, a seventh sense, whatever you want to call it, because boy, do you guys nail things that happen in the future. Well, that's one of the exciting things is just exploring, you know, you know, the threats to the world and trying to, I think it's, it's, it's my way of trying to make peace with the, with the chaos of the world is that, you know, I look at things, threats on the horizon and I think, well, how are we going to face that? And then I have to write a book about it just to put my mind at ease. Well, if people want to read how you put your mind at ease for this last time and also take that little trip to Europe that they've had to put on hold, it's The Last Odyssey. James Rollins, thank you for talking to us today about it. That's this week's show. Apologies if it doesn't sound as polished as usual, but recording voice tracks while under a comforter at home just isn't the same as a studio. For the next time around, we're trying to pull together a show with some info on how to survive this current crisis. Until then, you can always find us on Twitter and Instagram, and I shouldn't have to remind you, but I will, wash those hands and keep your distance. I'm Lisa Cherkovich.